Welcome to the Andrew Young School Podcast, where each month we interview a member of the Andrew Young School community who embodies the school's charge to think ahead and innovate in the fields of criminal justice, economics, public management and policy, social work, and urban studies. In this episode, we speak with Jeray Capers. Dr. K. Jeray Capers is an associate professor in the Department of Public Management and Policy at Georgia State University. Her research focuses on social and racial equity at the intersection of public administration, policy implementation, and race and ethnic politics. Dr. Capers holds a PhD in political science from Texas A&M University, and she is a 2008 graduate of Winthrop University, holding degrees in psychology and political science. During our discussion, Jure speaks about how teachers and policymakers can address the inequities created by school segregation. So I'm here with Jure Capers. Jure, thanks for sitting down with me today. Thank you for having me. So Jure, I want to start with the question I ask everybody, which is, what was your path to the Andrew Young School? Ah, good question. I actually shared this <laughs> kind of with my students yesterday in class as I asked them what their plans were for um, post-GSU life. So my story um, and pathway here is kind of interesting. It started with uh, not knowing what I wanted to do when I grew up, uh, aka when I was getting ready to graduate from undergrad. I had no plans, kind of. Um, and I had the opportunity to do an internship Um, through the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation with Congressman James Clyburn in 2009 um, after I graduated from undergrad. And that gave me the opportunity to see Congress at work and to see uh, policymaking live. Uh, It was a really exciting time at the in that period because this was uh, the beginning of the Obama years. And so um, Congressman Clyburn at the time was the majority whip, which was really cool to be see leadership happening at that vantage point as well. And that kind of reinforced one of the things that um, some of my mentors in undergrad suggested to me, which was maybe you should go to graduate school. And so I already applied and really said, well, I'll take a stab at getting a PhD in political science, but I don't really know how this is going to work out. But having that experience allowed me to see like, oh, this is cool. I'd like to study this more. Um, Being there in D.C. at the time, um, which was about the time that we were doing the American Recovery Act right after the recession of 2008, uh, allowed me to understand um, that the relationship between politics and policy. And I was able to see how policy was being made, what conversations were going on, but also who was included and excluded from those discussions. And that really drove me um, to pursue a PhD in political science, but really focus on policy and public administration, figuring out how are these policy decisions going to actually help or hurt people uh, when they trickle down, so to speak. And that kind of research is what I did in graduate school, um, which kind of brought me into the space of wanting to really work at a place that focused on policy and focused on uh, people more so than politics. So the so what was what I was really interested in and intrigued about um, from that experience as an intern and all throughout graduate school. And so for me, the Andrew Young School seemed like a a natural fit because uh, while I was trained as a political scientist, the things that really got me going were policy outcomes and the policy process, not necessarily the politics and the voting behavior and why people think what they think think about politics and policy. So that's kind of how I got here. How would you describe your research now that you're here? I know it's changed over time, but if you had to give like a broad definition, what are the things that you're interested in? So I am 
interested in understanding um, differences between and within demographic groups and on one hand, and also understanding how policy supports uh, different groups or hurts different groups. And so that's where my um, interest in social equity and racial equity comes from. So I am often really looking at policy and trying to figure out, is this helping um, make groups more equitable, make uh, racial issues in this country better, or are they making them worse? Is it creating a disparity or reducing a disparity between demographic groups? And that is really what drives my research, trying to understand how do we become a society that is more equitable. So that's how I would describe it. And so what drove you to focusing on this idea of equity within policy? What was the motivation there? Uh, Well, it goes back kind of to that experience of being an intern um, in 2009. So um, Congressman Clyburn represents some of the more distressed areas of South Carolina. I am originally from South Carolina. And so the things that um, were important to his constituents and um, people in South Carolina really dealt with a lot of issues of poverty, um, education inequality, access to resources, access to health care. Um, and a lot of his area and where I grew up, which eventually became a part of his district as well, um, is very rural. And in very rural areas, um, there is a lot of inequality, a lot of poverty, not a lot of opportunity. Um, and it's and it's very inequitable there. Um, and so growing up in that space, you know, allowed me to see firsthand, even if I didn't necessarily experience it myself, um, see the implications of not having resources and what that does to um society. And so that having that experience on one hand, um, seeing people work on that those issues in the political space, but also growing up in, in that area really drove me to be passionate about trying to figure out um, why these issues are happening and what we can do about it. And in recent years, that's led you to a focus on researching school segregation. I guess my my broader question about that before we really dive into that work is, what focused you on that particular issue? How did you get to education policy and school segregation in particular? In undergrad, I took a course called The Politics of Education, and it was taught by Dr. Stephen Smith. And um, in that class, I thought mainly what we talked about was school desegregation and school segregation. Uh, I should disclose like where I went to undergrads went to university, which is fairly close to Charlotte, North Carolina. And Charlotte, North Carolina, Um, has a little history of being in a lot of the desegregation debates historically. So that uh, my professor was really involved in some of the cases, him and his wife, um, involved in those cases, trying to make uh, school desegregation work in Charlotte. And so he had a lot of firsthand knowledge about school desegregation and its benefits and some of the uh, consequences of school desegregation and trying to make um, that work out in Charlotte. And so his course really, although it was called the Politics of education, it really focused on that. And that's kind of where that interest started. Because initially I thought, are we really still doing this? And then it dawned on me that, of course, we're still doing this because we barely did it. Right. And that's something that I learned in his class was was that while 1954 seems like a long time ago, it took 10 years before schools ever moved on the issue. And then once they moved on it, they began to retreat um, in about 15 to 20 years after 
um, seeing some movement. And there was a retreat from that period on. And so that's kind of where that interest in school desegregation started. In graduate school, I kind of kind of tinkered with it off and on. And then as I was starting to develop my own research agenda, I realized that the overall racial balance of a school that is, you know, who is in the school in terms of students might be important, but what does that really mean for what's happening in the schools? And it led me to start wondering how school desegregation or um, segregation is affecting the teachers and what they do. Um, And so having that background in his class and sort of tinkering with it and also having an interest in um, implementing policies and focusing on teachers brought helped me kind of bring all that work together. So that's sort of the origins and it has fueled me to explore um, both school desegregation and segregation, but also uh, teacher implementation and demographics as well. You touched on something just now that I want to briefly revisit, which is desegregation became the law of the land in the 1950s, but yet we still end up with segregated schools even here in 2021. Can you briefly touch on how that still exists as a reality for so many Americans? Yeah, yeah. So what the Brown v. Board of Education decision did in 1954 was to say, you know, we cannot legally segregate schools, right? So it eliminated legal segregation within schools. Um, It took 10 years for schools to actually implement programs and policies to start to see some movement. And that happened really because the federal government um, began to say, if you continue to do this, we will withhold funding. We will, but if you do it, we will offer some funding and support, right? We know people act when there's money. In the late 1970s and 1980s, there are a series of court decisions that began to push back about the methods of implementing school desegregation. And one of those methods was busing. And so this is where um, cases related to Charlotte-Mecklenburg school districts um, and their school districts that are sort of really pushing back against the busing aspect of this. And so that is where we start to already see some retreat, because if you can't use that mechanism, then school districts are trying to figure out how do we still ensure that we do this. And so what has really led us to where we are today and still seeing segregated schools is that we pretty much ask school districts to maintain desegregated school district schools, but we've taken away a lot of the tools that they can use to do it. Um, and so this has inevitably undercut the decision, essentially, because the tools that we've used, we've said, no, you can't use that, or you need to come up with something else that's more race neutral. And while some race neutral options have worked, so for example, for a while in North Carolina and Wake County, where uh, the, the Raleigh-Durham area is, they used, um, they decided that they would focus on um, class to try to manage desegregation, but then they moved away from that. And so over time, we've kind of given up on it, essentially. We've recognized the problem, um, but we've given up on it because the tools have either been taken away or they've just become too hard to use. And so in your work, you've found what some would consider kind of counterintuitive findings on the outcomes of school segregation. Can you speak to some of those? Yeah. So in my work, um, like I mentioned a little earlier, I look to figure out, you know, what effect is this having on teachers and how they um, carry out their job? And then in 
return the effect that it has on teachers, what does that mean for students? And so in my research, I find that in more segregated schools, teachers tend to use their discretion to benefit students of color to a greater extent than teachers in schools that are desegregated. And it seems kind of counterintuitive because the general understanding is that desegregated schools should be better, right? They have all of these benefits um, such as greater resources, there's a greater emphasis on diversity, um, students learn from each other um, based on their differences. But in the segregated schools, what my research suggests is that students are seeming to get some gains from what their teachers are doing. And so initially I thought, oh God, this is gonna, this might not go over well. I don't wanna, <laughs> I don't wanna end up on a conservative talk one day because someone is using my research to push back against against school desegregation. But if you take a moment and think about what I'm trying to do, that is to see what effect it has on teachers, it kind of makes a little sense. So if you are in a, a desegregated school and you're a teacher who works there and the effort is to say, you know, everything is great here. Um, students have the same access and equality to everything. We don't really need to focus on trying to make sure that we're um, making sure that one group of students is not being uh, marginalized because we fixed that problem by having a desegregated school, then you're less likely to kind of look out for those um, inequities. And so in a desegregated school, the effort to try to focus on one demographic group might not be as strong, right? Because in, in a sense, you're already assuming that you don't, you've already dealt with segregation um, and you don't have that. But what's happening is in those schools, they're more likely to have within school segregation. And so that within school segregation isn't being addressed in the same way. Um, it seems that it would be in a school that is that, that is racially imbalanced. That is to say that while the school is segregated, teachers in that school realize the demographic um, issues that they have, and they're looking out for those students um, more consciously. And so that's, I think, what is really explaining here. Now, my research, of course, is trying to figure out how the racial balance of the school affects what the teachers are doing. And I don't, I mean, I definitely think there's more to the story than what I can figure out with the data that I have so far, but, and I encourage people to continue to work on this work, but I think it's the first step to trying to figure out, you know, what might we gain with the limited resources that sometimes come with a segregated school? And so there are some sort of, I would say some small benefits to, to that. And there's a slight advantage in some sense in trying to get equitable access to some resources in a segregated school that you may have to compete with in a different way in a desegregated school. And that's really kind of an interesting way to look at these issues of inequities, because essentially what you're saying is there are paths to success for these students in both environments. It's just that those paths may look very different, or at least the actions that the teachers take to put them on those paths will look very different. Is that, am I summarizing that correctly? Yeah, yeah. I think you're you're kind of onto something here, right? It's like, I don't want to give the impression that I'm like, advocating for segregated schools. That's not what I'm saying. But if we understand that that schools are segregated and that we are, have already taken away the tools to desegregate schools, what can we do and what should we be doing to give students who are in these segregated schools the best resources and the best opportunities? And what opportunities are there? And so my research at least shows that, you know, they are 
are more likely to be recommended for gifted education and to get some benefits from those teachers in a way that schools and desegregated students in desegregated schools are not. And so that's sort of one of the thoughts that I'm thinking is like the next step um, in practice for for schools if we have moved away from desegregation, uh, unfortunately. So let's let's talk about those next steps a little bit. What are you learning from your current line of research about how teachers should ideally work in these environments? Ah, that's a good that's a good question. Um, so what I am learning about what teachers can do and should do is like first to understand the mechanisms at work and where you work, right? And so sometimes, you know, um, teachers are there, they have a lot of responsibilities, they have a lot of tasks, um, and they have a lot of pressures to, to execute tasks and to support students and to teach students. But recognizing the boundaries and the restrictions of the environment that you teach in, and that's not just in terms of resources, but also the politics and the community and even the structures that you operate in and realizing how those things influence what you can do and what you can't do. Uh, I think is one way that teachers, and I'm learning that teachers might have a better understanding of how to support students, right? So for example, if you recognize that uh, your community promotes diversity in language only, but you use within school segregation, that is you hardly recommend students of color for gifted education, or you engage in discipline disproportionality, that is you are more likely to... um, suspend students of color for minor infractions than white students, then then you recognize that your job has some sort of structural elements to it that regardless of this discussion about diversity that your school says that within this school, it's perpetuating inequalities in their practices. Uh, and so for teachers, I'm realizing and learning in my research that having that recognition, that understanding is the first step to figuring out, okay, what can I do to not be a part of that problem, to push back against those systems and those structures? And so having that knowledge, I think, is important. That's one thing that I'm learning um, in my research. But my other, the other thing that I show consistently in my research is, of course, the power of of teachers and people who are engaging and interacting with students. So one thing that comes out in my research and then some other uh, research from scholars here in the Andrew Young School as well is that uh, when we try to ask these questions about representation and administrative effects, so we look at principals or we look at superintendents or anybody outside of the teacher realm, like out of the classroom, we don't seem to see these same relationships or effects on students. And so what that tells us is that really, I mean, the people who are driving the ship here are teachers. They're so important for what's happening. Um, And I think teachers know that, but sometimes I think people forget how important what teachers do um, is to... Uh, how important they are to the functioning of the school, right? Not just uh, the the teaching aspect, but even just whatever the school wants to do, it doesn't happen if teachers don't actually do it or acquiesce to that. And so being able to recognize the inequalities in the school and into the system could really be something that teachers could actually push back against and change. It's so interesting to hear you talk about this idea of agency within structure, Because I think a lot of times when we hear terms like structural inequality or structural racism, it feels very big and very unattainable. But you're essentially saying that teachers have some level of agency. They are there are things that they can do in the classroom and in the hallways and within the school environment that can, if not change policy, at least 
create the best outcomes they can within a policy environment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm kind of getting at, right? So, and I teach an intro to public administration class here in the Andrew Young School. And one of the first things that I teach the students is, you know, all of our policy goals and ideas and the things we like to think about and tell people what they should do are great. But if we don't have uh, public administrators, people like teachers to do it, it goes nowhere, Right. And so uh, the same is the case for dealing with structural inequality and structural racism and all of those things. Right. It kind of does start with teachers. So pushing back against that and saying, hey, we have a problem here and I'm, I'm not going to be a part of that problem. It is really powerful. I'm thinking about our teachers of color, our teachers of underrepresented minorities, and just think about the daily realities of life in the classroom for them. And I'm wondering what you're finding in your research about how teaching in segregated versus desegregated schools differs for them specifically compared to other teachers? So the research suggests um, that the daily realities might actually be a little more stressful for teachers of color uh, working in desegregated schools than segregated schools. And the reason for that is in a segregated schools, the people look more like them, right? This is a more, for lack of better terms, home environment, right? There's more representation. There's more um, more support for 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 you, right? Um, then in a desegregated school that may be a little more racially balanced, but you know the the teaching workforce is largely white women. And so even a, a desegregated school, you are still certainly the minority there. And so I think that there, the uphill battle for a teacher of color in a desegregated school to do things to advocate for students of color is much harder right, for a teacher of color in that environment than, say, a teacher in a segregated school. And so I think the daily reality for that teacher is a little bit more challenging. Um, so to try to be a change agent, to try to push back against um, structural racism or inequities in your school is, is probably more challenging for that that teacher. But this is also the space that the research suggests is where, where their representation and their effort is needed. Uh, at, and then the other thought I have is like, this is also the space for that teacher to have the greatest impact too, right? Because this is what the research is showing where we're actually seeing more within school inequities and uh, lost opportunities for students of color. So they certainly have the opportunity um, and ability to have the greatest impact in those schools. But you're right. I mean, the the daily realities and daily challenges are are more significant for a teacher in that environment. And they're likely to experience more of the pushback that you asked about earlier. So keeping on that vein, are there specific recommendations that you would give to teachers in a desegregated school versus a segregated school? Yeah, I would say, I mean, if you are hoping to um, be the agent of change, to get some co-conspirators, right? So there is the benefit at your school is that you have other people, so some people of color, but people who are not um, of color who are also likely interested in changing the environment for students, right? So 
one of the reasons that many people get in education is because they genuinely want to help students. And so if it is framed as an issue where this is hurting our students, the, the people that we are here for, then you're likely to find some co-conspirators, right? Some white co-conspirators who can help, right? So not just allies who say, yeah, this is really messed up. Uh, we should do something about it. But it's people who use their agency, who use their privilege to stand up and say, I'm going to do something and I challenge other white people to do something too, right? So having that ability to find uh, greater support, greater networks, and people with some power and resources is, is something that they can do. So that's the first thing that I would recommend. And the second thing is I would say is to, to be persistent, right? So these are challenges that are embedded into schools that have persisted for a long time. And I know there's some school districts here in Metro Atlanta who've dealt, who are trying to deal with some of those issues. I think uh, Gwinnett County is one who's pointed out that, you know, we have a discipline disproportionality problem and parents have brought it to their attention. And so work te- uh, teachers working with those parents and those coalitions and those organizations um, and continue working on this issue to put pressure on schools and school districts, I think is another thing that they can do. And the third thing I would say is, uh, in regards to staying persistent, is to, to keep working, right? this It took a long time for these systems to build up, and it's going to take some time to break them down too, right? And we haven't, as we started this conversation, 1954 seems like a long time ago, but it wasn't. And we actually didn't really start doing it until the 60s and 70s. And so the time that we've had it hadn't been that long. And so we have to keep working at um, pulling down these systems. And so what about teachers in a segregated school? Does the advice differ or is it pretty similar? I think it's it's pretty similar because like we also have to remember that um, in my research, when I look at the segregation in the school, it's based on the student population. And so that means in that same school, you very well could have many, much more white teachers than black teachers in that school. And that is to say that the percentage of black teachers may be a little higher in the segregated school than the desegregated school. But uh, because of the dynamics of education, uh, those schools could still very much be still have a sizable white teacher population. And so though in that sense, right, having co-conspirators is still going to be important in that segregated school as well. And the issues that they're pushing for might be somewhat different, right? So it might not be as based on within school segregation issues. But uh, I think some of those things will be the same and they'll have to um, use co-conspirators as well to get some, some support. So I think in some ways, yeah, the, the advice is the same. The issues might be a little different, but yeah. And this actually uh, unearths another question that I'm curious about. You've mentioned a couple of times now that education as a whole is predominantly white and female. Is there anything in the research showing you a sort of pipeline level concern about not having teachers of color? So there is, <laughs> there are interesting conversations in the research about um, this issue. And so one of them is that there is a pipe, uh, somewhat of a pipeline issue. The second thing is that there is a retention issue. And so while we may get lots of people who are education majors and start in schools, many people do not remain in education after the f- first five years. And so what we see is a major drop off in retaining teachers of color for various reasons. And so that has caused um, the issue we see currently with the demographics of, of 
of schools and so of the teacher, the teacher population. Having ways to make sure that we retain teachers of color, that we support them, um, that we hear their issues, that we give them the resources that they need uh, and support that they need to stay beyond the first few years is really going to be important to diversifying the workforce. Uh, and the other thing that sort of comes up in the literature in terms of talking about representation is ensuring that all teachers um, have training on being culturally competent because some teachers, and this includes teachers of color as well, are trained in spaces that um, maybe don't teach that type of cultural competence and then they move into schools that are say segregated and they're not prepared for that environment. And that also um, affects teacher retention. And so being a, making sure that the training also reflects uh, the diversity of schools that teachers are going to be placed in um, or hired in, excuse me, uh, or making sure just that the curriculum of teacher education and the pre-service training exposes teachers to all of the various environments they could possibly see is going to be important to um, addressing this issue too. So that if we are able to expand the representation at a quick rate, then we're also teaching upcoming te white teachers to be prepared in this space and also to push back against the inequalities that we see within schools. So we've talked a lot about the daily realities for teachers, which have changed dramatically over the last 13 months. I realize that a lot of your data was collected before the pandemic, but looking at your research agenda during and after what is sure to be a very traumatic period for a lot of schools. What are you thinking about in terms of impacts that COVID-19 might have on the types of issues that you're studying? And where are you going to start looking next? Good question. So one of my first thoughts uh, last year as we went into lockdown was what effect will this have on students of color, low-income students, English lang language learners, so the marginalized populations of students. And I shared with some colleagues on another podcast that, you know, what we could see is greater effect of what we call summer slide. And this concept that um, in the summer months, some students lose some of the things that they gain um, during the school years because they're not practicing and they're not reinforcing it during the summer. And so that was my first thought is like we could see major, major uh, summer slide, maybe on a five times greater level. Uh, and, and that was just a random number I threw out. Right. But and now that we're a year in and we've tried to continue to make sure that students learn as much as they can, but they're doing it more. They're doing it remotely or their parents are helping them with it and they may or may not have the skill to do it. And we're learning about new methods in classrooms. Uh, I think that that the, I'm interested to start looking at that and trying to figure out, uh, did the summer slide happen and uh, how great of a slide was it if it did? And then what does it mean long term? Does it mean that uh, the expectations for moving to fourth grade need to adjust for a third grader? Does it mean that we spend more time teaching students some of the basics in third grade or reinforcing them in fourth grade before we can move to the fourth grade curriculum, for example. And so there are, I guess, a ton of questions that I'm thinking about in terms of, of students. And then the on the teacher side, one of the things that I, I was concerned about or thought about was how do teachers manage work and 
home. So if you are a teacher who has their own kids, so I am a, a teacher's kid, right? My mom was a teacher. And so my mom and I talked very early, like, what would you do if we were still, my siblings and I are all adults, but if we were still children and you still had to teach? And she said, you know, I think that your dad and I would probably decide that I wouldn't be able to teach. Like I, we would have to focus on, on you all. And so this means that there are probably some really good teachers who've had to make that decision to say, I have to focus on my home. Now, what does that mean for keeping and retaining the talent in education? So I just talked about, you know, we need teachers of color. We have a shortage of teachers. And then you may have some teachers stepping back from this space where students need them the most, right? Maybe they need to see them on the screen um, to keep them going. And so having those teachers step back, what does that mean for the workforce and the efforts to make schools more equitable um, in the long run? And so I, I'm there are a lot of questions, like I said, that I have. Um, and We'll have time, of course, to explore this for years to come on what COVID-19 has done to education and what the outcomes are and will be. Well, Dre, I want to thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me today. If people are interested in your work, where can they reach you and learn more about what you're doing? Ah, cool. Yes. So if you are interested in my work and what I'm doing, um, I have a, a website that is... Um, in desperate need of being updated, but still has some really good stuff that things that we talked about today um, and some future projects, uh, pending projects, I should say. Um, it's just my full name, kjraycapers.com is the website. You can certainly reach out to me via email, uh, kcapers at gsu.edu. Uh, and then from time to time, I share things on Twitter. So look for me, my full name again on Twitter. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jere. This has been great. Thank you. The Andrew Young School podcast is produced by Taylor Olmsted with production assistance on this episode from Jennifer Giratano. Our executive producer is Ivani Raval. We are a production of Georgia State University's Andrew Young School of Policy Studies located in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. To learn more about the Andrew Young School, visit us online at aysps.gsu.edu or follow us on social media at aysps.gsu. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to leave a review in your podcast app of choice, and we'll be back next month interviewing another policy thought leader from the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University.